It is a powerful moment when enemies become friends. It's five days before Christmas, 1943, in the middle of World War II, and an American B-17 pilot, his name was Charles Brown, was staring into the eyes of his worst nightmare. His B-17 was crippled, it was barely flying, and three feet off of his wingtip was a German fighter plane. They were so close that the pilots could actually see each other. And that's what made all the difference. They actually made eye contact with each other. Making eye contact made them, humor, or made them human. Charles Brown was staring into the eyes of a young man named Franz Stigler. These two young men were suddenly looking at each other. Stigler knew that if he wanted to, he could have taken down that B-17 in a matter of seconds. But he didn't because of the eye contact. Instead, he actually flew his plane up underneath of the B-17 and escorted it all the way back across Allied lines. He risked his own life and his future in doing that because to do that was actually punishable by death. Stigler said that as he watched the B-17 fly off into the sunset, that he actually prayed out loud, good luck, you are in God's hands now. Fifty years later, that couple met, those two guys met each other. These two sworn enemies, bound together in a moment of humanity, found each other and are now friends. In fact, they are fishing buddies in Vancouver, British Columbia, right across the line. It's an amazing thing. It's a powerful moment when enemies become friends. During the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had chosen uh, to speak at, at an official reception. And during his address, he referred to Southerners as erring human beings rather than enemies that needed to be exterminated. And after his address, a lady walked up to him. She was very much a patriot, and she rebuked him for saying that he should speak kindly of his enemies when he ought to be thinking about destroying them. And his response has gone down in history. He said, why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? The Apostle Paul was an enemy of God who destroyed, or who I was actually had his soul destroyed by a relationship that he never ever saw coming. God could have chosen to destroy Paul as he could have chosen to destroy any of us, but instead, the God of the universe made a decision to extend mercy and friendship and adoption into his family to the most unlikely of people, us and the guy who actually wrote the book of Colossians. See, we often forget, before Paul was Paul, he was actually a guy named Saul. And he was a murderous, angry, arrogant, religious thug. In fact, the Bible describes in Acts 7, 8, and 9 that when Paul was Saul, he hated Jesus Christ with everything that he could. Saul hated this bothersome Jewish rabbi who, who walked around the countryside speaking about grace and truth. You see, Saul was a man of Jewish law. He believed there were rules and they needed to be followed. And the fact that this carpenter from Nazareth would walk around stirring up trouble and dare to claim that he was the actual son of God, that unearthed a rage in Saul that took him to the point of murder. He started murdering Christians because he thought he was doing God a favor. When Paul was Saul, he made the followers of Jesus suffer intensely. In Acts chapter 8, we open up Acts chapter 8 and we walk into a murder scene. Stephen, a follower of Jesus, has just been publicly executed. And in the description of the murder, it says, and Saul was there approving of it. It says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put him in prison. Before Saul was Paul, his purpose was to simply destroy the church. Saul would stop at nothing 
to end this little faith movement that was known as the way. That's what they called themselves. He's a full-on antagonist, and he's thinking, I'm going to make this little faith movement crumble like so many others have crumbled previously. But God had other plans. God wanted to go in a completely different direction. So Saul is on his way to destroy more followers of Jesus, and then he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus himself. Let me read you the story. It's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was a name for the Christians back then, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, hey Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I love that picture. Saul's completely in charge. Saul is the man. Saul's got everybody running scared. And then somebody bigger than Saul shows up and puts this bully in his place. I mean, I just get this picture of the light shining down, and suddenly this big tough guy is like, Hello, Mr. Bright Light, disembodied voice, sir, right? And he asks a question, who are you? I'm Jesus. Now get off your backside and go to that city and stay there until I tell you what to do. Because, because your little game with my people, it's over. I like it when a big guy puts a bully in his place. And if you know the story, Saul's now blind, he's helpless, he goes to Damascus, and a transformation occurs. He becomes a follower of Jesus, regains his sight, and starts preaching. I mean, listen to the Bible as Paul does a complete 180, okay? Acts chapter 9 says this, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, parentheses, the same guys he was trying to kill about 72 hours earlier. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus, parentheses, the guy he formerly hated just a couple of days ago, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a powerful moment when enemies become friends. It's a powerful moment when a person who's far from God suddenly steps close to God. I've been doing this for almost 25 years, and I've seen a lot of complete 180s in my time as a pastor. A lot of them. I've seen God turn a racist man into someone who's colorblind. I've seen a devastated addict become the national director of a ministry that helps addicts break free of their addiction through Jesus. I've seen an altar boy with a broken past become the leader of a movement that's reaching men right here in Whatcom County. I've seen marriages, I've seen marriages that were doomed become a place where through the power of Jesus, other couples have found a safe place of refuge and healing. I've seen criminals become church leaders. I've seen victims become powerful advocates for change. I've seen people who were so down, no one ever thought they'd get up, rise back up again in God's strength to pursue Jesus plus nothing. I've had a front row seat watching God turn a lying storyteller into a pastor. I've had an opportunity to see God 
turn the biggest critic of Christ the King Community Church, because that's what I was. Before God dropped me here, I used to sit out in the county and throw rocks at this church. I used to go, who'd want to go to that Walmart church? Inch deep, mile wide, nobody carries their Bibles, they can't speak the gospel, that nobody people would come and actually hear that. I used to be the biggest critic of all. I've seen God turn a critic of Christ the King into the teaching pastor at Christ the King. And while I was out there just flapping my guns, criticizing this particular part of God's body, Jesus is sitting in heaven going, if you had any idea what I had planned for you, you would so shut your mouth. You'd just be quiet. I've seen stodgy, pre-processed, uptight church people become wide-eyed radicals for Jesus who actually believe that they can change the world. I've seen God turn some incredible stories around, and Jesus just turned Saul around. He just spun him 180 degrees, and all of a sudden, the guy who was once trying to wipe out the church is now writing letters to try and help keep the church together. And we run into him in Colossians. Because of Jesus, the man who once hated and killed and inflicted pain is now writing these words. Colossians chapter 1, we're at verse 24 this week. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I've become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's now been kept hidden for ages and generations, but's now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Okay, there's some deep theological stuff there, and I'm going to do the best I can to try and just break it down so we can all get a bite-sized piece today. I want to break down what Paul is saying through these words. So Paul says this, complex sentence, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let me tell you what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying that anybody in this room can or needs to contribute to the work that Jesus finished on the cross. When Jesus did his work on the cross, forgave sin for everyone that was willing to ask of it, when God redeemed us and set us free, he finished it off with this particular statement. It is finished. It's finished. You don't need to add anything to it. That's good news because if we think we can add something to it, we end up doing something that I call treadmill Christianity, which is why we do all of the right things for all of the wrong reasons. We run in place exerting unbelievable amounts of energy and we go nowhere. Paul says you don't need to contribute anything. Jesus accomplished it all. Paul is sending a very different message here. He's saying that when we suffer and we're all going to suffer but can we just stop there for a second? In the North American context, we have a difficult time talking about suffering, don't we? We think we're suffering when our check engine light comes on, right? We think we're suffering when there's only four entrees on the menu, right? We think we're suffering with only 64 channels. Like, what am I going to do with that? Basic cable? No way, right? We, th we think that's suffering. 
These people were living every day not knowing if they would die the next day for doing the same thing that we're doing right now. Just meeting together and talking about Jesus. Paul's saying when we suffer, and we will, when we suffer, we need to understand this. The most important message we will ever preach is the one that we live out when it hurts. When it's not easy. When trials or suffering comes, the message is simple. It can either be one of whining and complaining, questioning God and wondering where in the world He is in the midst of the pain, or it can be a partnership that we enter into when we enter into the suffering of Jesus and preach the message that even when it hurts, Jesus is more than enough for us. That's what sustains us. That's what gives our pain meaning and gives us hope. God intends for the suffering of Jesus to be presented to the world through the suffering of His people, which is not meaningless and not without hope. This is my question. If you're hurting today, what message are you preaching through your pain? Are you preaching that life is Jesus plus nothing? Or are you preaching it's no Jesus plus a whole bunch of my human effort plus a whole bunch of begging and pleading and and that's going to somehow work it in a different direction for me? Paul moves on and he says that the church that I once destroyed, I now love. Verse 25, for the sake of, the bo- of his body, which is the church, I've become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul's saying, the church that I once tried to eradicate, I'm now trying to put together. And the way I'm doing that is by teaching and preaching what, the message that God has given me. I think it's amazing when you think about this. When Paul was Saul, he learned an unbelievably important message. You don't talk smack about God's wife. You just don't do that. That's what Paul was doing. He was trying to eradicate the bride of Christ, which is another word for the church. You've heard me say this before, right? You can talk smack about me all you want to. You say something bad about my wife, I will go caffeinated Canadian all over you. And it's not pretty. And I've had a lot of coffee this morning. All right, can you tell? All right. The bride of Christ, the apple of his eye. If you talk smack about God's wife, you're going to encounter a very jealous and angry husband. Be careful how you talk about God's girl. Now, let's be honest. The bride of Christ, the church, she's not perfect. I mean, she's most certainly not very pretty because we're all a part of it, right? Right? She's not even really likable at times, but she still belongs to him, and we better remember that fact. Paul had fallen in love with the church years ago. I fell in love with the church. I love it when she gets it right. I love it when she gets it wrong. I love her because she included me when I thought I was too dirty and broken to go anywhere else. She took me in. Let's make that personal. You took me in. When I didn't know where else to go, you took me in. And now together, as the bride of Christ here in Bellingham, we get to be a part, not of the problem, but of the solution. Paul goes on and says, my message is plain. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's saying there's been a mystery. The mystery's been floating around. The mystery had to do with who was the Messiah and when was the Messiah going to come and where was hope going to emerge from. 
The mystery revolved around the fact that God was coming in human form and that Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the mystery. And now the mystery expanded because suddenly it was, it was amazing to people that God had brought that message to everybody. Not just a select group of people, but everybody. Jew and Gentile, man and woman, Republican and Democrat. Yeah, I said it, okay? Apple and PC, country and hip-hop, decaf and regular, Ford and Chevy. I mean, it didn't matter. Everyone had an opportunity to not only see this mystery that had been revealed, but to take a step beyond that and realize that the mystery of Christ was embodied in these words. He wants to be inside of our heart. He wants to take up residence there. He's Christ in you, God in you for all of eternity. And that's what gives us the hope of glory. Not glory that comes from bragging about what you've done for God, but glory in the fact that God has done everything for you. Paul also says, I've only got one message. Verse 28, the message of Jesus. Paul, I mean, I get, I just, He's like a band with one song, right? He's playing the same song over and over and over again. Verse 28, he's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I'm all about us loving each other and helping each other and counseling each other and encouraging each other. But Paul is pleading with the Colossians here to understand this. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the only hope for your broken marriage. Jesus is the only hope for your wayward child. Jesus is the hope in your addiction because he's the only one that can set you free. Jesus is the answer to the prayer you pray when you ask God for a revival of your soul, when nobody else is around and nobody else can hear you. Jesus is the answer for your dream of faith and hope and love. And Paul's saying all of the preaching and all of the teaching is done to point you towards Jesus. And all of the small groups and all of the counseling and all of the quiet times and all of the worship times and all of the coffee and everything is supposed to point you towards Jesus. And if it doesn't point you towards Jesus, it's not worth having. You know, he says, he he uses three words here, proclamation, wisdom, and admonishment. I love the proclamation part of it. Can you tell? I like the proclamation part. I like it when somebody gets fired up about Jesus. I like at 10 o'clock, I mean, I like had a twitch in this leg. It was like, ah! And all this stuff inside that you're just trying to get out. I love the proclamation because it stirs my heart. I love the wisdom. If you were here at the Passover experience on Friday night, I mean, Justin's up at the front and, and everything he's saying to us is just dripping meaning all over our Bibles. I think I love the wisdom. I got enough out of that. I, I could go for a year off of what Justin presented to us. Such a beautiful thing. We love the proclamation. We love the wisdom. We don't like the admonishment, right? We don't like that. Nobody likes being corrected. Nobody likes discipline. I don't like being disciplined. Nobody wants to admonish or to be admonished. But Paul says, look, guys, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Whether you like it or don't like it, Here's the truth. The only way to have a life in the kingdom of God is to lay yours down. The only way to live is to actually die to yourself. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. It's not politically correct, but it's biblically true. And living for Jesus is going to demand everything from you. Your life, your comfort, your business, your spouse, your car, your dreams, 
all of it will be considered as loss if you truly live as God wants you to, which is with the equation Jesus plus nothing. Let me tell you how this works practically. As we enter into the Easter season, I want to remind you of something. The goal of inviting people is not to get them just to come to church. It's not the goal. The goal and the dream is to introduce them to Jesus. Church is just a vehicle. It's a human conduit through which the message of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is proclaimed. We want to tell that message on Easter. You get to tell it every single day in the world that God's placed you in. Paul also says, I have only one purpose, and that's to help you be mature in Christ. I used to think that you could define whether a person was mature in Christ by the size and the weight of their Bible. That's kind of the church I grew up in, right? I mean, some of those guys, seriously, they needed a forklift to bring that Bible in with them. It was huge, you know, and they'd lug it around and drop it on people and, you know, liability claims, Bible injury. I mean, it was just one of those things, right? I used to think that maturity in Christ was defined by wardrobe, right? I mean, if you had a suit, you were holy, you know, and if you had three different color ties, wow, you know? I used to think that, that spiritual maturity was defined by who they gave a microphone to. Boy, can I tell you, that's not true, especially here, all right? Just being honest. Can I give you a simple definition of what a mature believer in Christ kind of looks and acts like? A mature believer in Jesus has everything in Jesus, so they don't want for anything else. A mature believer lives for Jesus, so they're not afraid to lose their own life. In fact, that's what makes Christians so weird. For us, death is not scary. It's an upgrade. Amen? It's an upgrade. A mature believer embraces the simple. It's Jesus plus nothing for them. A mature believer has no one to impress and nothing to approve, nothing to prove because it's never been about what they've done for God. It's always about what God has done for them. I can pick out mature believers because they don't care about what they like or don't like. Their question is always, is, is what do we need to do in order to get people who don't know Jesus here to get that message? Mature believers know that, that stuffing yourself at a spiritual buffet will create unbelievable head knowledge. You could play Christian Jeopardy till the cows come home, but if that head information doesn't make an 18-inch drop into your heart and then bounce back up and come out your mouth, it's completely and totally worthless. That just makes you a Bible trivia expert. Mature believers know that following Jesus is a talking faith. They don't buy into the lie, I'm just going to walk the walk and hope somebody asks me a question. Mature believers know that knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are two completely different animals. Mature believers know that nothing of this world lasts, so why would they waste their time investing in it? Mature believers live like they were dying, and I'm not talking about a country song by Tim McGraw. Here's another thing that I think is important. Mature believers are never self-proclaimed. If anybody ever walks into your world and goes, I am a mature believer in Christ, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry. They just proved their immaturity because of their lack of humility. Mature believers want to give away the Christ that's in them because they're absolutely convinced that he's the hope of glory. Paul continues, he says, I only have one passion, 
It's Jesus plus nothing. Verse 29, to this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul exhausts himself, struggling with the tension of living completely for Jesus. God's poured so much into him, and now it's a struggle to know where to direct it or how to even control it. I watched a video this past week. Somebody sent it to me. It was of a group of senior firefighters pranking a rookie firefighter. They handed him a high-pressure water hose and said, just hold on to this, and then turn the water on full blast. That hose owned him. It owned him. It lifted him off the ground. It flipped him over. It dropped him on his back. It's snaking all over the ground, and he's holding on for dear life. There's water going everywhere. It's completely and totally owned him. It's showing him complete. He's in no control. This thing is in total control, and he's just getting beat up and down like a rag doll. Finally, he lets go. The hose takes off, and as he's running past the camera, you can hear him scream through his gas mask, that was awesome! Sleep in service. When was the last time you ran out of church and scared the people coming out of Krog Costcutter going, I just had an encounter with Jesus in church. It was awesome. We had worship this morning. It was awesome. God actually showed up. Grant, he was twitching all over the place. The Bible was freaking out at me. It was awesome. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus is your passion, how would anybody know? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Whee! Where do I sign up? If Jesus is your passion, how would anybody know? Paul would say, I've been so radically reoriented. I look like an undignified fool in front of the world, and I don't care. I lost everything that I thought mattered, only to find out that it was replaced with Jesus plus nothing, and that was all I needed. It's a powerful moment when enemies become friends, is it not? You know, we don't want the title, but the Bible says we're natural enemies of God. I spent a good chunk of my life just turning my back on my Savior, doing my own thing, only to find out that He would pursue me everywhere I went. I did about a 90-degree turn several times, and it was like, well, I want Jesus plus the American dream. I want, I want Jesus plus safety for my family. I want, I want Jesus plus, you know, a nice retirement account. That's what I'm really looking for. And yet God keeps calling all of us back to not treat Jesus as an attachment, but instead to make him the subject line of every word, every thought, every job, every moment, every decision. When you read Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, through the lens of a man who used to be a thug and killed Christians for fun, it gives you a bit of a different angle. So I was in a restaurant this past week, and I could hear two young college guys behind me speaking quite loudly to each other. One of them was doing all of the talking. 
And I recognized the words that one of them was reading out loud to the other one. So somebody took up our Colossians challenge, and these two guys were just reading the Word of God out loud to each other in a restaurant booth. They were reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 from what's known as the message. Dr. Eugene Peterson, an amazing biblical scholar, took all of the biblical scholarship that he knew, and, and, and he wrote a paraphrase of Scripture. And that's what it is. It's a paraphrase, not a translation. It's a paraphrase. He just wrote in his own words what the Word of God was saying to him. And this is what I was hearing from the booth right behind mine. I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into in this world, the kind of suffering that Jesus takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church as part of that suffering. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a gift. God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wants everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery in a nutshell is this. Christ in you. Therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of our message. We preach Christ, warning people, don't add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring every person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. That's what I'm working so hard at, day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy that God so generously, generously gives to me. If Jesus is your passion, how would anybody else know? Are we really going to be those kind of people that says we're just going to walk the walk and hope that somebody asks us a question somewhere along the way? Or are we going to be the kind of church like they were in Colossae who said, we have this mystery uncovered in our heart. How can we possibly call ourselves loving if we don't give it away? This is what you have as a follower of Jesus. God Almighty Himself is in you and that gives you the hope of glory. Let's live like it. Can we live like it, sleep in service? Can I get an amen from somebody in the room? Let's pray together this morning. God, I, I confess to you that I like to add a lot of things to that equation. For me, it's Jesus plus the approval of a lot of people. It's Jesus plus a comfortable home. It's Jesus plus no nasty emails. It's God, forgive me for treating your son like an attachment. And Lord, for any of my brothers and sisters who are here that can relate to the same thing, we corporately ask for your forgiveness for that. Help us to live. Jesus plus nothing. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you didn't expect to come today to 
church today and have an encounter with God, but maybe you did. Maybe you realize that Jesus is something you've never considered as the primary focal point of your life, or maybe you're just surprised at the fact that that God would want to be your friend. I'd love to give you the opportunity to live out that little statement. It's a powerful moment when enemies become friends. You can become a friend of God today by simply praying this prayer. Jesus, I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I've lived life for myself, and now I want to do a complete 180. So I confess anything I've ever done that's hurt you. And I thank you, amazingly, that you said you'd forgive my sin. God, I invite you to take over my life. I want to live Jesus plus nothing. I give you every thought, every word, every action. I know I'm not going to be perfect. So I will rely on your strength from this day forward. God, I'm going to ask that you would do the same thing for me that you did for Saul. I want to live life differently. So I confess with my mouth that you are God. Instead of meaningless pain, God, I ask that you would teach me through my pain. I welcome you into the middle of my life, as messy as it is. And I pray from this day forward that you would be my sole focus and my God. Nobody's looking around right now. I'd never do anything to embarrass you, but I'd sure love to pray for you this week. If you prayed that prayer earnestly from your heart, I believe you've experienced a complete 180 inside of your soul. And I'd just love to be able to pray for you this week. So if you prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up in the air so I could see it? God bless you. God bless you and you. God bless you and you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you too. God bless you guys right in the center over there. God bless you in the back. I can see it. God, thank you that you have not stopped turning enemies into friends. We make ourselves completely and totally available to you. God, I thank you for these who've courageously lifted their hand. God, I have no idea what their story is, but I know you love them. Lord, I pray that this moment would be cemented in their soul for the rest of their life. I pray that today, Jesus would be enough for them. We give you honor and glory and praise. And all God's people said, amen.